Alright, we're recording now. Okay. <laughs> we're recording. Cook-cook-a-can-a-cook. Jenny, is there like a chant? Let me think. There's one where you, you talked about like who's number one, he's number one, as in Christ. You'd be like, who's number one? He's number one. <laughs> Sarah, did you, or, or Garrett, did you ever listen to Lecrae, the Christian rapper? Because that was key to my can experience. Oh my god, that's fucking genius. Okay, I have no idea who Lecrae is, but DC Talk was fundamental to my adolescence. Okay, I completely forgot all about Lecrae until, like, the <laughs> summer of 2019, where I was at a Catholic wedding in Des Moines, and I get in an Uber, and I'm expecting to be just, like, driven into a location with a minimal level of contact, as one expects. Um, instead I get a pamphlet that's, like, a chart of a bunch of, like, Christian artists, and it's like, what are you in the mood for? What do you love? And she's, like, jamming, and she's, I'm like, yeah, put on some Lecrae. All of the rest of my friends are like, this is so fucked up, and I'm like, this is hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what's your story? And she's like, I just love God. I love rocking out and spreading the word in, in my Uber. And I'm like... Yeah, haven't bopped this jam in a while. <laughs> and so we get out and all, like, go do our queer heresy at the Catholic wedding. <laughs> That's amazing. I think my favorite Lecrae, like, uh, lyric is, like, represent, and it's like, get crunk. And it's like, if you're repping Jesus, and I'm like, you're saying get crunk, like... To get crunk for Jesus? It just—it felt so antithetical to. It's not. You would think so, but that's because you didn't attend Baylor University and go to a frat party where I saw many a testimony through drunken debauchery. <laughs> you can, in fact, represent and get crunk simultaneously. In case these are not mutually Just saying that like people go on Jesus rants at Baylor when they're drunk or they like try and use frat parties as some sort of ministry. We'll talk much more about the social dynamics at play all across the Baylor University family industrial complex on our forthcoming episode, A Star is Born, featuring the life and times of Ken Starr. But that's not what we're here to discuss today, Garrett. We're here to focus on a place where you can kick back, relax, and worship, and that is uh, Canacuck Summer Camp. And here today we have with us Jenny, uh, my longtime friend, who is esteemed with many credentials, but foremost among them, she's the recipient of the 2003 Foursquare Award for Kindest Camper. Jenny, congratulations, and tell us uh, what you've been up to since. Thank you. Uh, it was the uh, Foursquare Life uh, Kindness Award. And, you know, I always say that it was it's kind of like cheap to give the kindness award to like an eight year old because like eight year olds are always pretty cute and sweet. Like it just kind of felt like a cop out. Um, but, you know, I'd like to hope that I'm still living up to my Foursquare Life um, honor. Uh, right now, um, I'm living in L.A. 
I'm working in the enter- entertainment industry as a TV assistant. Um, whether or not I'm as kind as I was back then, I don't know. I'm usually watching TV. What else is there to do during the pandemic, anyway? <laughs> no, but sh- she does it in the way that it's her subsistence. Like, she produces a television show. And so that probably colors the way that you watch all television and media, right? Um, I mean, yes. I've gotten better about it. There was, like, a period of time where I felt like I could only watch reality TV because everything else, like, I would just pick apart and analyze in my head, and it, it just didn't feel like relaxation to me. Um, but I've, I I think I've I've come to peace with it now. That it's, like, I can think of it as, like, part of my creative process and, like, not something that I have to, like, compare myself to or, or try to dissect. God, during COVID times, it's, like, it's tough because, like, I hate the outdoors. I mean, I love, like, sitting on a beach somewhere, but hikes are not for me. Um, All right. Uh, Jenny's first take officially on the pod. Uh, the outdoors, overrated. Speak on it, girl. <laughs> Tell us what you mean. She says she doesn't like heights. That's right. I just, I just don't like heights. Like, I, it might be just that. Like, I always feel like I have something better that I could be doing. Like, we're, like the thing that bothers me about a hike is that you're not really getting Heights. to a, des- a destination. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I will go on plenty of long walks, but for some reason, there's just something about it as an activity that I just find fundamentally weird to be narrowed in on. Because yeah. people make such a big deal out of it. Like, oh, we're going on a hike, and it's like... Here's what I hear when someone's <laughs> like, let's go on a hike. Like, you want to go up uh, indefinitely <laughs> until you can't anymore, and just, like, uh, take a look at where you got, and then we walk back down? I don't know. I'd rather go see, like, a lake or something that, like, takes me on a journey of some kind. Yeah. Um, but, Jenny, we uh, deeply appreciate your knowledgeable media perspective because we want you to explain to us the pageantry of the Canacook experience. And for those that don't know, Canacook is a youth summer camp that operates in the Ozarks in Missouri. It's, like, around Branson, right, Jenny? Yeah, it's about an hour outside of Branson. It's, like, near the Missouri-Arkansas border. Got um, it. And so what's yeah. it like pulling up, like, on in the van that your mom drops you off at Canacook at? Like, what's the welcome experience? Take us there. I would say, uh, honestly, it was a little more low-key than the actual camp experience itself. So I don't know if they're maybe trying to just, like, you're dipping your toe in the water. Like, they're not screaming at you and doing the chants, like, right away. Like that's Oh, what not yet. Not the night. screaming chants yet. <laughs> yeah, that's more like, so they don't immediately, like, hit you in the face. Um, it's like, uh, I think your first day is more like all day, so everyone's kind of trickling in at different times. Um, and then they kind of turn up the heat at night. So once you get there, it's like your typical, like, balloon arch or, like, whatever, like, you know, like, welcome to Camp Canica kind of thing, and you get settled into your cabin, but, like, um, you're in for the real trouble trouble later on. Um, okay, so what you're telling us is that gone. you pull up, you, mom drops you off, and your parents see the visage of a regular-looking summer camp with some balloons Definitely. and some cabins. A thousand percent, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. It, there, there's nothing, like, I, I just identify my Canica experience with a lot of, like, men screaming, <laughs> Just, like, 
screaming, chanting, very sweaty men, do, like, doing that. And, like, that was, it was a low-key, like, there was some peace and quiet um, sure. while, and while the parents were around. As we all know, there's the time and the place for the sweaty chance of screaming men that we can all appreciate. But is it when you're <laughs> eight years old and impressionable and not sure quite what they're screaming about or why it involves your soul? Not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you get there, you meet your cabin mates, and then uh, you say you get into trouble later what do you mean do they start telling you some rules do they lay down some cabin regulations on you your first like intro to like the camp experience or like what the culture is going to be like is like at your is, is at this event and it's called k-life and they have multiple of those events there's like one at the beginning i think one in the middle one at the end if i'm recalling but there's definitely one at the beginning and that's when they kind of set the tone for like what camp is going to be like and it's an extreme like display of masculinity like i remember my first year going which is when i was super young like like i said eight i went eight years old i went for like five years so i think i stopped no i think i went four years i think i stopped going when i was like 11. so when but when i was eight my first year i remember being super freaked out because they were like okay like welcome to canada and they're like screaming like like these guys and like shirtless and they're like yelling and it's like body to body in this gym wait um, wait 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 hold up you didn't win the award until you're eight so how old are you your first summer oh I, was i could, could i have been like six that, that can't be right that young. sounds like too perverted to be possible that you're witnessing this remember was telling my mom if i learn how to tie my shoes like can i go to canada like, I had to learn how to tie my shoes before I went. Um, so, but I did win the Four Square Life Award, I think, my third year. And I think I was around, like, eight or nine. I need to get my, the timeline right. All right, so bring your six-year-olds to the chanting, sweaty dude pit where we can all worship yeah. together. Exactly. And one of the things that I remember where they were, like, you know, you're going to have the time of your life. It's going to be, like, the most amazing experience you've ever had. Um, and they were like, you're going to, um, like, play sports till you puke, eat till you puke. Cool. Like, it was, like, this really hardcore, like, they literally said until you puke. And it was, like, this really hardcore, like, you're going to give your body to everything that we do, including when we feed you. And I remember being so disturbed. I was like, I don't want to eat until I throw up. Like, <laughs> Forcing and, you to vomit for the Lord. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I'm not sure if that was them just, like, plugging how delicious the food was. But um, I, I found that to be really disturbing. I was like, I really don't want to vomit. No. Like, the thought that I had. No, that's a vibe. It's just such a weird violating thing where it's like, you're going to eat so fucking much it just feels really violent i don't know something about it is very strange adapt so your body I, I, to our weird cultural circumstances children <laughs> exactly i remember doing some weird food related challenges at christian camp like really really mm -hmm. odd ones that seem to be designed to make the kids throw up like i remember one where you were supposed to like 
eat a banana and run across the room and drink an entire Sprite and then run across the room and then eat another banana and then run across the room and then drink an entire Sprite. Very clearly designed to make someone, like, really uncomfortable (laughs) physically. Like, Do you remember the cinnamon challenge? I did this at a K-Life event and took... That did not exist when I was a child, just for the record. (laughs) No, K-Life, to be clear, I remember this, like, bodily boundary pushing because one of the challenges that I did, I guess they try to replace, like, drinking or partying or your urge to find out what a naked person looks like with some other like extreme activity I guess to try to satiate that but in a way that hurts you so I did like a thing where I swallowed a (laughs) spoonful of cinnamon and like couldn't taste food for two days because I like burned off all of my like taste buds and everyone was like yeah she did it it's like it's weird like veiled frat boy humor like it, it feels like a weird hazing thing, but also, yes, because, like, you know, I did go to Canada, but, like, I went to, like, VBS, like, Vacation Bible School. And, yeah, there was always a food challenge. It was like, oh, we're going to mix, like, ketchup and, like, you know, habanero sauce. And it's, like, to them, that's just peak humor. Like, yeah. It's just, like, someone else's discomfort slash vomiting. Yeah, like, one thing I think to point out about these camps is that they're all structured around a group of particular adults' ideas of what children will find cool. And they're so <laughs> yeah. wrong most of the time, in my experience. <laughs> Well, certainly, if anyone thought it would be cool for us to have, like, two or three or four times a day when we were supposed to go off on our own or go off with a partner and, like, do some weird spiritual-related activity where you're supposed to, like, meditate on the Lord or something and being asked to, like, do these weird meditative activities during the day, it's like, go and be spiritual. Yeah, I want to ask you all what you would do during that time because I would just, like, doodle in my journal and, like, have gay thoughts about my friends from my cabin, and what, what would your experience be? Um, I, well, we were, we had to write letters, like, like, everyone, they, there was, like, a one-hour day where it was quiet time to write letters to your parents, and, like, I think my first or second year, I wrote a letter to my parents where it was a stick figure of myself holding a flower that was dead, and then it was raining, and then I was also crying, and that was all I sent them in the mail. Oh, no! I've, I get that letter, I'm like, well, time to visit young Jenny. Time for her to come home, maybe. But they were just like, oh, she's homesick, and it's like, no, she's being traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, okay, so anything that I went to was always, like, one week long. I never went to, like, a summer-long thing, you know? But I went to, like, a million little conferences and different, like, and a lot of them were at camps. Um, So it was often friends that I hadn't seen in a really long time or didn't see very often, you know, because it was missionary kids that lived in other countries. And so there was this big reunion aspect of it where we all really liked seeing each other and hanging out together. So then we would do a lot of basically just like completely fucking off and doing our own thing when we were supposed to be doing whatever they were asking us. Or, because we were staying up late every single night and I got almost no sleep, they'd send me off with my little booklet or whatever where I was supposed to write down thoughts and prayers and whatever, and I would just fall asleep. Like, wherever I was, I ended up taking these weird naps because they wanted me to, like, read and ponder and whatever, and I had gotten six hours of sleep in the last two nights as a, you know, little kid, so... 
Time for a nap. Okay, yeah, I'm not saying that all spiritual programming that involves children is bad, but I think for me, no. I didn't go to Kanakuk. I went to Youth Front, which is, like, a similar one in the Kansas area, and um, I remember a prayer assignment where they, like, send you off on your own like that that was specifically about lamentations, which is, like, reflecting on the ways that you're bad and broken, and, like, oh, that was cool. a big theme of it, is just, like, reflecting on how you're a sinner and you need to change your behavior very quickly, and I really wish, looking back, that my experience had been more affirming, and if you're gonna channel it through religion, if that's what you're being paid by these parents to do, I kind of understand that component intellectually, then can you at least please do it in a way that's like, kids, whatever you want to do, God loves you, and that's cool, Mm -hmm. and we don't have to be weird and fratty about it and force you to eat whipped cream until you throw up, or like, why? Just why? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I think a lot of you know, the Kanakuk experience, or at least underneath a lot of the teachings, it's just shrouded in shame. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, friends who have attended different religious camps. Um, Like, we have a mutual friend, Sarah, who, like, loved her Jewish camp. It was, like, a really amazing way for her to have a community every summer. Yeah, like, yes, you're talking about our friend Melissa, and every Mm -hmm. time she would come back from her Jewish camp, I would be so jealous because it seemed so healthy. And I was like, where Mm -hmm. is that version for me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just Um, wanted one of the activity-based ones where you actually just did the stuff instead of, like, doing, like, a half hour of some fun activity every day and the rest of the time was, like, praise and worship and God-related activities. I used the fun time to just, like, sleep and catch up because I was so mentally exhausted from all the spiritualism Mm -hmm. that was being thrust on me. I, I can't go, I'm trying to think about the division between like activities and the worship. And right, the, wor- like the work-life balance that we need to think about for the six and seven-year-olds at Kanakuk. You know, it was there was definitely more activities, more athletics than there were religion. But I think it was sneaky in that way because it made you want to come back every summer. Because I actually wasn't terribly religious, and my parents weren't either. Um, but Kanakuk seems so fun and cool that, like, even for someone who's not super religious, um, I still felt like I was, like, having a good time, but then also, like, doing the sports and the activities, but then they were, you know, having those moments of, like, intense worship, just probably at shorter spurts. Mm. Right, yeah, like, that's how I sort of got involved in K-Life, which is the school year, like, small group version of Offshoot Kanakuk, which mm-hmm. is that my parents were pretty religious, and there's nothing wrong with that, um, and it mm-hmm. was a way that they, like, really approved of me just, like, hanging out with some of my friends every week mm-hmm. night on a Wednesday, like, and th- that, to me was healthy and my like life chapter was good in a lot of ways but you know Kanakuk did some really bad stuff and that's what we're here mostly to talk about and um ask questions about because there's stuff that people don't know and this camp still operates uh tried to redeem itself are these redemptions plausible let's find out so Jenny when you were a camper what uh, do you remember about a man named Pete Newman? So I will say, um, just hearing his name, I, I never had a name that was really associated with his faith. I, I just always remembered him, this was like the early 2000s, as a big figure in the camp. 
Um, I believe at the time he wasn't, I knew he, uh, just from my own research, I know he was a part of like the administration, but at least while I was there, I believe in the early 2000s, um, he was a counselor for a boy's cabin. And from what I remember about him was he just, and there are people from like all ages, all walks of life who do work at camps. But to me, he stood out because he just felt a little bit too old to be a counselor. Um, and you picked up on this as a child. So like, yeah, I just picked up he, like, he felt like maybe he belonged in the administration. Like it just seemed a little weird. Um, because at the same time, he, he kind of tried to give off like an aggressively useful energy. Um, and it just didn't match his age. That's something that, that captured me. He also had a very distinct look, which is why when I was seeing his mug shots, on the internet, I was like, holy shit. Like, I remember that guy because he had such a distinct look. Um, and, you know, in the spirit of punching up, and since this man has been described as the face of Canacuck, uh, tell mm-hmm. us any f- outstanding features or facts about his face, Jenny. Well, I mean, look, I don't want to throw shade on the unibrow, okay? Like, I myself have to do extensive grooming on my eyebrows. I feel the struggle. Um, but he rocked a full unibrow. You know, it was a choice for him. I'm coming out and saying it. Yeah, it was the unibrow. Look, we've talked on the pod about beauty standards and how they're bullshit. If you can rock a unibrow, power to you. But uh, why would that be your choice if you were a pervert trying to be low-key? Why why the bald head with the unibrow? I know. That's that's what sucks. It's like, you know, I don't want to make fun of anyone's looks, but it just, like, as a kid, he was trying very hard to seem young and fun and um, forthcoming, but that look did not uh, help him in that. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about what all that involves later, because I, this is a red flag for everyone out there who mm-hmm. works with youth, which I know that Jenny and I have, and Garrett mm-hmm. has, and we all care about the yeah. youth as we should, because they're the future and such, even if you don't want to have youths of your own in your body or with your body parts, whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's great to want to work with kids and have that as a passion, valid and cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it is a huge red flag to me when an adult is projecting the energy, is giving you the vibe that they're trying really hard to seem cool to a group of kids, that is never a good situation. My friend told me this the other week, and I could not agree more. Every interaction that you have with kids that you're being paid with to work with should be for their benefit and not yours. And if your attempts to interact with them are to glorify yourself or be the cool minister that has uh, such a close relationship with his campers that you can go nude swimming in the lake together, then that's the toxic behavior of not being willing to establish those boundaries as an educator and a counselor. Now, I'm not sure that, like, someone wanting to be cool is, like, the biggest problem in the world, but associate it with the sort of weird energy or something what i'm talking about is a very specific energy that predators Mm -hmm. give off yeah it's when they're oversharing things about their personal lives about sex maybe that students shouldn't be hearing that these people wouldn't be saying if the parents of these kids that have been entrusted to them were in the room and they do this intentionally to break down these boundaries as a tactic 
both to gratify themselves and have a little fan club and also make the kids feel like they have a special secret. That is definitely a grooming technique of child predators. Um, no, and I, I, that really kind of validates sort of how my only memory of him is just something was telling me that there was something wrong with this person or something fell off. It just, I remember seeing him and it was like sunset. And these are one of these childhood memories that you have, where it's just like this one random snapshot in in time. Um, But he was like running up a hill at sunset and all of his campers were like chasing after him. And there was just like this weird elation, Stockholm syndrome kind of feel to it. And I was young, under 10 and at this point, and it really like chilled me to my core and I I just at the time couldn't put my finger on it and then years later when I saw you know on the news that he was being um, arrested it all sort of came together and it makes that memory that I have just really just turns my stomach. Well Sarah maybe you can tell us a little bit about the actual story. Yeah I hesitate to do this because we were having such a funny conversation before but let's dig into pervert Pete Newman and what he did at Canacook. So as I said, this guy ran Canacook for many years. I th- I'm thinking upwards of like 20 years based on what I saw. That could be wrong. Um, but he ran the camp for a long time and he was known widely by people that worked with him as Jenny observed as a child. He was unusually close to the kids. He, although he ran the camp, wanted to be a counselor. He wanted to be on the ground, sleeping in the bunks with kids, like doing his thing everyone seems to think that's fine because he's such a great well-intentioned guy like going forward with his ministry and helping all these kids i guess by putting on this elaborate camp every year and jenny uh do you have any idea how much it costs to attend canicook i know it's in the thousands i don't know what it's like now I can pull it up right now. I mean, as you know, we've got several variations. We've got K2. We've got K Country. I was at K1. Um, K1 and and K Classic. All right. I see that K1 runs from 2,500 to 4,700 right now. So you're paying a good, like, 2 to 5K to trust your kid to these people for two to four weeks. It's basically $1,200 a week, roughly. Yeah. Uh, that could pay for, like, a lot of cool stuff for your kids if you were interested, like some language or art classes, some, like, music classes, some karate, whatever your kid's interested in. But, you know, if you're little Jenny and you're just chomping at the bit to learn to tie your shoes so you can go to Canacook, then you definitely want to send your kid to Canacook, am I right? Yeah, I mean, you know, my mom went, too, um, back in the day, so that was a big reason why I wanted to go. That's why I probably went so young, because my mom really enjoyed her experience back in like the 70s well i want to just probe this a little bit further before we dig Mm -hmm. into the gross sex stuff which is like what were the fundraising efforts targeted to you as a child while you were at canacook um you know i no one asked me for money while i was there um i will say um there was a camera crew following around my cabin one year And I believe that was for the purpose of marketing. Obviously, you know, there's K-Life during the year, which is where Canacook has, like, satellite 
um, like worship kind of centers across the Midwest and the South where... Yeah, I would bring my weekly tithe to K-Life. Yeah, and you would, you would pay to go to K-Life so that they were getting some sort of donations throughout the year. But I think the main thing was just how like expensive the camp was in itself. Um, so K-Life was like a subsidiary of the same ministry that was popping up in like different cities that are near enough to like yeah. feed the camp? Yeah, exactly. So you tell your friends about Kanakuk and how great it is and how the cultures here at K-Life is, like, just a microcosm of that wild and enriching experience. Okay, so K-Life, though, is, like, a weekly thing throughout the year? It's weekly. I went every week on Wednesday nights. That seems like a lot to be going every single week, and a big part of that is that it's supporting this summer camp. It's a pretty elaborate business model. Yeah. No, um, I will say at least, like, I don't know about you, Sarah, the few times I went to K-Life, it wasn't quite as toxic as my, as my time at, at Canicuck proper, but. Well, like, since we looked into the Canicuck cost of attendance, I'm checking out their website to see if there's any availability for financial assistance. It couldn't be more vague. All it does is list the terms for which financial assistance is available and then gives you no instructions on how to apply for financial aid. Oh, I knew there was no, like, scholarship or, or anything like that. No. Well, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't want to make it too easy. You don't want everyone just getting the help that they need, you know? Right. You wouldn't want poor minority campers coming to your camp. You want the white, wealthy suburban kids who are legacies so that they can bring their legacy children uh, who will have legacy children of their own. And so it's generations of Kanakuk, and uh, we're all living it. <laughs> Yeah, I, like, couldn't have said it any better. And also, you know, the fact that it is a sports camp um, where you do, you know, pick a sport and you spend hours on that per day. Like, you know, there there were no campers with disabilities there. So it's an athletics camp and you are supposed to spend, like, a couple hours a day, like, on a sport of choice and, like, being athletic and there's competitions and things like that. It's, It's really, like, a form of capital at that camp. And while I was there, it does feel like a super ableist camp because there weren't, you know, art classes or, like, singing classes or anything like that. It was specifically geared towards intense, intense elite sports. Like, all of the counselors have to have elite sport experience. So, like, I had a counselor who was, like, a college gymnast and, like, one who was, like, an elite basketball player. And so, um, and, and that's how they they choose counselors and um that's sort of the emphasis that they place on your time there um is athletics Mm. that is so interesting i never even considered the like ableism component of it because i didn't really know the sports camp dynamic Mm -hmm. um you know at youth front we had like arts and crafts where me and the other nerds would hang out no no arts and crafts and i did not really have a sport i was good at at the time so i was like I chose gymnastics because I was like, there's like a cool like pit I can like jump in. <laughs> yeah, sounds fun. Yeah, that's valid. I was like, I'll just like jump around and do somersaults because like I, I didn't, I wasn't like an elite like basketball player or anything like that. Okay, yeah. I would have been all over this camp. I would have loved it as a kid. I seriously, you know, I, I'm hearing these stories and I understand that there's a really dark center to this story. But when I think about myself as a child and the fact that I never got to go to the camps that were really 
targeted at non-Christians or at people who were, you know, like, it wasn't a ministry in the sense of, like, we're going to bring kids in and they're going to have such a fun time that they will forget that they are learning these Christian lessons. The stuff that I went to was all, like, you will learn Christian lessons constantly in everything that you do, and you will also get some free time, which will be the only air you have to breathe. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the dark side of this, and let's go ahead and dive in, much as we loathe to do so. Um, You know, content that is disturbing is ahead. We're going to talk about child sex abuse, Uh, but we will not avoid this topic for fear of encountering it, because this man, Pete Newman, must continue to be held accountable. So... Pete Newman, face of Canacuck, the, like, whole head honcho while Jenna, you're a little camper there, turns out is an absolute pervert and is currently serving a lifetime sentence for sexual abuse of children, like, in relation to his time at Canacuck. So, here's what happened. In 2014, the Northern District of Texas, which is a federal court, so we're talking big boy shit, Uh, decided this case looking at all of the relevant facts. So there's a plaintiff, a brave individual, and I will not go further into this person's identity, uh, who reported Newman for sexually abusing him over a period of years at Canacuck. And we've talked about how this guy gets uncomfortably close to youth as part of his method, right? He is their counselor. He's sleeping in the bunks with them. Uh, The allegations in this case state that they would be naked together, they would engage in all types of sexual activity except kissing, so there's an extra layer of perversion just for your nightmares, and it involved nude contact during camp events such as basketball, swimming, and Bible study. So even the sports dynamic that we are just talking about is twisted and perverted by this man's attempt to cozy up to children for his sexual gratification. That is nothing short of horrifying. Yeah, a person in that sort of position, they have a ton of power, and unfortunately, a lot of church ministries don't do a very good job of looking into the way they structure their youth ministries to try and keep kids safe. And I know that's an issue that a lot of churches are trying to do work on getting better at, just because the history of the church in general. And the idea of this camp being such a big part of so many kids' lives and then now continuing to operate, I I just don't really understand what it is between what happens here in this court case and now where, you know, they have all these, this bright colored website that makes it seem like everything's just fine. So Pervert Pete was actually sentenced a little earlier and the case from 2014 that I'm looking at was actually this man against Canacut Camps itself and not the individual who criminally abused him. And so... We're talking now about Canacuck's liability institutionally for all of these happenings. And it's known uh, as part of the allegations in this case that the Canacuck directors received several tips, including over the phone and including children's disclosures that were not handled adequately and that they actively ignored. So are you shocked? Is anyone shocked? Jenny, how do you feel about the camp that you went to doing that type of shit? Um, no, I, a thousand percent not shocked. Well, first, did some research a little myself, and I wasn't surprised to hear that the uh, family, I think it's, I think it's like the whites, they were 
harassing victims. One of the victims um, put out a restraining order because they were sending emails um, repeatedly, most likely in an attempt to silence them. You know, obviously, the Pete Newman situation is horrific. And, you know, one, one sex predator at a camp is too many. But, you know, I've done research and they've had since then two other arrests, one another counselor and then a bus driver who were also um, exploiting children sexually. So there's been three instances within the last decade at this same institution, which is just horrific. Yeah, it's not just this one specific pervert, but it's a perverted culture that preys on parents who are in the situation of just wanting to give their kids a good time and give them the normal experience of a summer camp that they're going to have fun at with their friends. And that is a deep form of affluenza and the ignorance of these uh, people that were eventually, you know, brought to justice technically if you think of it that way there was a tw- there was a 20 million dollar fine that ended up being awarded as the result of this court case whether or not that's sufficient my take is that we haven't done nearly enough to rid the ways that our society cares for children of diseased capitalist structures that allow predators to flourish yeah i think of this one as being really deeply connected to the way that People within the church often think of ministries as having extra viability. There's just the absolute trust in the evangelical ideal that, you know, like everyone who's working in ministry is purely trying to look out for the souls of the people that they're working with. And so I think there's a lot of goodwill that ends up in that situation where in reality, profit motive is constantly causing people to, you know, like set up elaborate business models and, and scams. And uh, I mean, I think the, of the whole of the prosperity gospel interpretation of the Bible is just being a scam. But I think this sort of intersection of someone running a, obviously a pretty elaborate business model in youth ministries, there's just too much that goes on there where people who are making a lot of money off of it are doing a really bad job of anything other than making money off of it, unfortunately. And, you know, it's interesting that you call it a business model because it is what it is. And, you know, it's it's a franchise. I mean, there's like 10 of these camps. There's like K-Kawaii, K-Classic, K-Whatever. I mean, it's really a camp franchise, like across um, that entire sort of Missouri. And there's one in Colorado region as well um and that's really scary to think about especially when there's just so it sounds like so little oversight that's scary when they have such uh, poor screening practices and potentially a toxic culture that could um, be, fe- be feeding um into these sort of behaviors and, and practices yeah and that's what yeah. happens when you prioritize your profit margins over the things that you claim to care about in your mission statement which uh we see every day from every corporation so keep an eye out folks <laughs> it seems like that entrepreneurial spirit with a little dash of god is just too much for people to resist oh my god, yeah that's right and i would like to give a special shout out or shout down to fellowship memphis which is a non-denominational church 
in Tennessee that uh, hired Pete Newman as an anonymous independent contractor to guide their ministry while he was awaiting sentencing for, you know, not contesting the fact that he sexually abused minors. So that's fucking affluenza of the highest degree. And we shouldn't forget that there are people out there that are letting their profit motives completely pervert their uh, supposed ethics. And you, have, if you have any doubts about this because you recognize that there are tons and tons of well-meaning Christians in the world that are developing ministry programs that are honestly intended, all you have to remember is the number of televangelists that you've heard get caught up in different scandals around the country. This is the same thing... It comes in a million different flavors, but we're always seeing the exploitation of vulnerable people under a Christian capitalist model in the U.S. Well, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And thinking of it as sort of a model, like you just said, and recruitment and evangelism, I think I think the camp is, I'm not sure if it's Baptist or non-denominational, but to me, when I think of it, I think it's pure evangelism. I still think it may be non-denominational, but one tenet that they did really hammer into us is this concept of I'm third, um, which is you have, you know, Jesus first, then you have yourself, and then you have others. Sorry, Jesus first, and then others, and then yourself? And then yourself. And, you know, on faith, that could be something really pure, but I think to me, this could kind of create almost codependent behaviors, if that makes sense. Like, the fact that your self and your personhood should come last, I think, is something that's really, really problematic. I mean, I get where they're coming from, like treat man with kindness and obviously value God first, and I understand that. But I think the whole I'm third thing could potentially feed into this sort of toxic culture where if someone is saying that they are embodying the word of God, or if you're putting someone else before yourself, that could be mean, you know, putting yourself in harm's way for someone else's gratification. And I think that that could be really dangerous. I think it's a dangerous thing to teach kids to not value their own personhood. Thank you so much for saying that because I also have feelings about I am third because I learned of it the same way that you did, like at the youth group. Mm -hmm. And then now I see it as like cringy Instagram tattoos that people get. Uh, and it has always rubbed me the wrong way because if you want to put God first in your life and prioritizing like your ethics, great. Go right ahead. But you at least please flip the like others before yourself calculus because mm -hmm. it, to me it's really a airplane deoxidation put your mask on first before you help the children and elderly people around you type of thing because if you're not good any attempts that you have to help others are gonna be influenced by the ways that you're not taking care of yourself and so that's what puts children in danger. Mm -hmm. It's basically telling kids to like obliterate your own boundaries and. Even when I was at camp, there was a counselor and I was like being a little shithead kid and I was questioning him about something. And he was like, don't question me about this. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, God says you have to follow the rules. <laughs> and I was like, well, why does God say that? And he's like, you can't question God. And so, and I was like, because like I had felt like I had been blasphemous in that moment. But looking back, I'm like, he was equating his own word to God. And that's so scary. Like, um, it's such a scary abuse of power. Yeah, like, that's such a scary thing to hear from you. And 
you know, if I ever have kids and if I ever want to send my kids to a camp, I will be having discussions with the directors and the hiring coordinators and finding out what the vetting process is for the people that would be around my children in that situation. Because it sounds like what you've got here is an amalgamation of untrained people who are really, really passionate about their religion which is value neutral in my opinion. You can I've known mm-hmm. excellent and terrible people that are really passionate about their religion. Uh, mm-hmm. but that's their common goal rather than really maybe the urge to help kids or like really counsel them. Although I'm sure that's a component of it for them, but I think the problem that we're seeing in the way that these camps and structures become really toxic is when it becomes about the leaders making themselves the idols, if you know what I'm saying. Well, the absolute yeah. absolute authority over children is a key part of American evangelicalism, I think. And the I'm third thing is not something that would be pushed around as much with people who are older, I don't think. There's a, you know, there's a respect your elders thing that's obviously a really important part of Christian morality. But also, I think there's a... There's a weird extra bit of pedantry that goes into how we deal with kids in Christian circles just because I I feel like children are seen in this weird way where they're not supposed to make almost any of their own decisions. And there's a lot of parts of that where, I mean, any individual parent might be responsibly raising their kids, but then they also expose them to all these weird messages that don't give the child a growing sense of bodily autonomy, which is really, really Uh important. And I think there's a naivety about that that's more dangerous than normal, because it's all these adults making choices about how children need to be and putting really strict rules around them that make them really vulnerable. Like, the absolute respect for your elders is something that was really pushed on me when I was younger, and fortunately, I never personally was abused by any of the, you know, elders of churches that I was a part of, but I know that other people were. I, you know, I remember having a conversation when I was a kid with my parents where they asked me if a particular leader type person that we knew had done anything to me because apparently it happened to a friend of mine. So like that sort of thing is real. And I think I was raised reasonably well to react to that. But if you were a little kid, like what are you supposed to do? All you have are the things that people taught you and they taught you the wrong things when they told you that you had to obey. Yeah, we're talking about Mm -hmm. children that are completely innocent and blameless in this situation, but are being fed the narrative at all hours at this isolated camp that they're at, that they are broken and worthless and they need the redemption and approval of not only God, but their counselors. And that is a dangerous dynamic. And that's a particular theological move that, like, a lot of Christians don't agree with in general. Agreed, yeah. But if there's, you know, within mm-hmm. that particular mode of absolute depravity, which was a really big part of the the Presbyterian upbringing that I came up with, it's a big part of my parents' teaching, the, the idea that you are yourself on your own a decent person is impossible and so you just get shamed Mm -hmm. into following a million little rules and giving in to anything that anyone else says whenever they have the right authority one thing i you know i have like my my various list of you know crazy canicuff stories but 
something that kind of goes along with what you were saying with kind of bodily autonomy and shame is this, this idea of saving yourself for marriage um, or like the holiness of virginity. That was a really big part of the Canacom experience. And I was always too young to be invited to that talk. Um, but my sister, once I think you hit like age 12, or something like that. Every year you get invited to a seminar um, that is about um, virginity and chastity. And you, you know, are told that you have, have to be married to have sex and that having sex is a sin. Um, and at the end of it, you're given a brick. And it's like, this, it is a freaking heavy ass big brick. And um, it has the Canacock logo on it. And it's to show it's like a purity brick. And it's to show that, like, your virginity is your burden that you are to carry with you. Um, what? Sweet. Yeah. What's the worst metaphor possible to get children excited? At least give them a purity ring that's, like, it's shiny and it represents that's, like, love. Yeah. <laughs> Here is so this funny. burden that you're not allowed to get rid of. <laughs> yeah, and so my sister had this, like, freaking brick in her room. You know, that's that was, like, on so the bizarre. Show. Yeah. I swear yeah. these adults making up these Christian metaphors came up with them the night before. Because so, so many of them make so little sense. You know, I lost my virginity when I was, like, 17. And if it were me and I had a brick like that from Canacuck, I would have thrown it through a window. <laughs> it's such a violent thing, too. Like, yes, why not, a brick? Like, it's not graceful. It's ugly as hell. It's just a simple brick for my family. What? <laughs> the Donald Trump can of soup thing. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The thing is soup. The thing is soup for my family. <laughs> He's saying soup is like a brick. <laughs> I guess Whatever. So. <laughs> I'm keeping it in. Executive decision. That joke well, makes no sense. <laughs> You're wrong. Uh, tell Garrett he's wrong in the chat. Another thing, too, is, um, so my, my, my cousin, I, I think she looks back on Canacuck more fondly than we do. You know, you, there, it was cool. There was, like, a, a huge pool and, like, the blob and, like, water skiing. And I think that was her idea of camp. And so when she got older, she wanted to be a counselor. And she attended the interview as a college student because she has to be a college student. And um, they were like, are you a virgin? in the interview in this job and I, at first i don't think that's legal like i think that's just that's some sort of job discrimination and she said no and they were just like okay um you'll hear from us i guess she did not get the job so i guess a prerequisite to working there is saying you're a virgin or lying that you're a virgin guess what um, guess what what that's super legal it's legal any private institution or uh, including schools could do that. You know, like, it's the same thing as Baylor, my undergrad's policy that if you don't, like, this isn't really enforced, obviously, because, like, how? But they have a, like, sexual misconduct policy and a vague threat that you can be, like, subject to suspension and expulsion if you don't adhere to it. That's different, though. For Like, employment laws are different. Employment laws are different, but the standards that 
private institutions are subject to, particularly religious ones, in the mm -hmm. decisions that they make for hiring. And there's something actually in constitutional law called the ministerial exception that means, like, you're basically exempt from all employment laws if you can argue that you're a minister, <laughs> which I have many thoughts about. That- what? No. No, I'm telling you, there is a court case that was a big deal this last year. So it's my... like an option, but you're not necessarily just going to win if you're a minister. No, you have to argue they... and win that you're a minister. No, but like if you're literally just a minister, right? You can't win any employment-related court case because of that. That's right. The courts will not interfere with a church's organizational decision to hire their ministers because we think that that... As a society is too close to, like, mixing church and state. Okay. So that's at play here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I figured separation of church and play state was at play in some level in terms of accountability. I just didn't expect it to be that on the nose. Yeah, yeah, something about it does not feel legal, but... You know? No, there was the reason that I know this fact is that there was a case that I don't remember the name of that was uh, in the news because it was appealed to the Supreme Court about the ministerial exception because this Catholic school fired a woman for her disability. Just like no argument that they didn't fire her for her disability. They definitely did. It would be very illegal under the Americans with Disabilities Act if like the church was subject to it. But they're arguing that she is a teacher of children was performing ministerial functions in, like, educating them about science, I think, was her... Maybe it wasn't science. I don't remember what subject she taught, but it wasn't, like, Bible study. And they were arguing that, like, the prayer elements of it made her a minister. And... And they did get away with it. Uh, so the Supreme Court, which may not surprise us because of its current composition, decided that a broad interpretation of what a minister is is totally fine. So in the question of can you discriminate against uh, non-virgins, first of all, non-virgins, not a protected class under federal employment law, unfortunately. That'll change when I rise to power, but until then... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, second of all, Kanakuk, in any of its employment decisions, can just argue, yeah, this person's a minister, and fight us about it. And fighting them about it would involve a very long and expensive uphill legal battle, which they know that nobody's going to engage in. Thank you for that. That was actually so good. I have Don't an approximate knowledge of many things. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but what I was saying before I, like, I, I in a nutshell, I feel like Canacock is one big um, machine to create, like, little uh, missionaries. Um, and so when I was there, you know, they went through and they asked everybody if they had accepted Christ, like, into their heart. Um, and I that wasn't really a part of my religion back at home, being a Methodist, but... So I told them, no, I didn't even really know what that was. Um, and well, just, yeah, can I know, stop you there? I'm genuinely curious about what the phrase accepting Christ into your heart means to different people from different theologies. I because I remember I being three years old, worrying that Christ was had left my heart since I had last accepted him into my heart and repeatedly praying to God to come back into my heart. So please explain, Jenny. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I didn't know what it was either, um, but it's just the concept that you, I guess, 
you you pray and you say out loud that you are a follower of Christ. Because when I, I, I told her, I, to finish my story, they asked me to do that because they were like, if you don't, you will go to hell. And I was like, well, shit, like, I don't want to go to hell. So they're like, okay. And it was like this big ceremony for all the people who said they had not accepted Christ into their heart. And so I had to go, and there's like candlelit, there's this huge cross, and they were like, all right, now go kneel at the cross and accept Christ into your heart. And I was like, I, in my head, I was like, I don't know what this means. So I just went and kneeled at the cross and just closed my eyes and like looked like I was praying, but I wasn't really sure what I was saying or doing. I was just like, okay, okay. And then everyone was like celebrating with me and they're like, you did it. And I felt like such a fraud. Cause I was like, I didn't do shit. I just like went up there and just like sat quietly and they're like, yay. And I like, rung this bell. And I, <laughs> and I just felt like I was such a fraud and um, then afterwards, they're like, okay, you know, we're so, like, we sat as a cabin in our little cabin. It was a very intimate moment. And they're like, hey, we're so glad that you've accepted Christ because we're all going to go to heaven together. It's going to be awesome. Um, but now, you know, I just want to let you know that, like, this is something that's not, you know, just a camp thing. Like, all of your friends, all of your relatives, if they have not accepted Christ, they will go to hell. And all of a sudden, it was like record scratch for me. I was like, what? Like, because I, you know, we, Sarah and I, like, we grew up in a, in a pretty big, predominantly Jewish community. And that was, like, traumatic for me. Because, like, my best friends were Jewish. And um, so they were like, it's your responsibility to convert <laughs> and go home and preach this word. And I and I felt so wrong about that. Um even, you know, even then when I was trying to be indoctrinated into it. And so I feel like that was those, that was them just showing their hand as to what this camp really was. I don't think that they're worried about that at all. That's explicitly the point of all evangelical ministries is to, like, train every single convert to be a little missionary out in the world. Mm-hmm. Right, and Jenny, I had just the same experience as you at our shared elementary school, except that, as you might remember, I was scared enough to take it a little more seriously, and it didn't make me that popular to tell our Jewish friends that I love and respect to this day that I was scared that they were going to go to hell and that they needed to accept the truth. And I didn't know what I was saying. I was just scared of my friend's flesh burning off because I loved them and I didn't want that to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. Y'all might have lived in a Jewish community, but I lived in a Muslim country and I distinctly remember being like six or seven years old in class and one of the students and I just getting in this weird argument in the back of the class that was like, no, you're going to hell. No, you're going to hell. Ah, messed up little kids. That's awful. Yeah, it's so traumatic because you all of a sudden, you know, think about all of all of the people in your life that you care about. Um... But, and, yeah, and just with the whole, like, sports, athletic camp, blah, 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 like, it just feels like a tool to bring kids in and to bring in a specific population, wealthy, you know, upper-middle-class athletes who are, like, the cool kids at school playing sports who can be, you know, who can take on the mantle of of spreading Christ's word. Yeah, Um, yeah, and I think that we all have the common experience that our childhood anxiety was related to, like, I don't want my friends to go to hell, and 
what if we imagine a future where children don't feel that anxiety but rather feel like I want to use what I've learned from like my parents and my church or whatever to like lift my friends up and like encourage them to be who they are and like show them that I love them like what about that life let's live in that world (laughs) I definitely remember being taught about how the yoke of Christ is light and I had no idea what they were talking about because, you know, again, weird phrases that people tell to little kids and don't explain. Or if they do explain, it's a word like yoke and they tell you about oxen and the way that they like are, you know, right. pulling their stuff. So little kid me is thinking about the ways that my ministering to my friends in school compares to the work of an ox. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> As one does. Yeah, totally normal. And you're like reading Transformers and you're like, I am Oxman. <laughs> I just remember feeling like the amount of pressure was not light at all. And I'm like, you all are not sure what you're talking about when you, s- which, which yoke of Christ is it? That's the light one. Cause I didn't get the right one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of this, like pageantry and our, engagement with these situations where like everybody else is acting in a weird way we've never seen before and we feel pressured to go along with it and feel kind of out of place and like a fraud um Mm -hmm. i want to hear from you about the crucifixion reenactment yes i was gonna say that yes oh my god the crucifixion oh my thank you thank you okay or should we call it the the larp the the cross larp (laughs) Yeah, the cross mark. Okay, I have a couple a couple of, like, things just to, sh- like, share. Every year, at least at K-1, they do a reenactment of Christ's um, slaughter on the cross. Oh, no. And they take you on a bus, and this is, like, the only time you leave camp, so it just feels like, and you don't really know what you're doing or where you're going, and it feels like, like a lot of anticipation. You're like, what's going on? Okay, what, what you- time of day is it? Like, are you leaving it's, for the evening, or is it in the morning? It's probably, like, four, because, like, I, you see the event in the daylight as the sun is setting. Okay. And, you, and they're They're going for golden hour. That's what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> they want yeah, golden they're going, <laughs> They want it, like, so cinematic. Yeah. And so you get off, you know, the bus, and there's, like, thousands of us, and we're all making this pilgrimage, you know? And while you're walking up... It, it is like an interactive experience. Like there is a guy, uh, presumably a counselor, on the cross, dressed up as Jesus, like in the loincloth, and he is being whipped. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> yeah, we whipped me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have several questions already. Because, okay, so you're arriving, and is is it like Stations of the Cross type of thing, where there's like multiple different displays, or is it like there's, one big thing? Is it being acted out? There's one big cross. Okay, so like, there's one there's big cross, there's a guy so, like, on the cross. So like, those other guys that were there, like, <laughs> <laughs> who yeah, cares we about them? We don't like the robber and the insurrectionist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've got just the one cross. So like we've we've thrown the Bible out of the window, but that's okay. It's an interpretive experience of some kind, and the one guy who's on the cross is being whipped while he's on the cross, right? <laughs> you were yes. See, I'm not well versed in the Bible, so you're just like I sense some inconsistency. <laughs> and like 
the the best part of the about about the inconsistencies is like you said it's all about the pageantry they're just trying to give you the experience it's like so jesus was supposed to have gotten like 39 lashes because if you got 40 then you had a chance of dying or something weird like that but it's like the movie the passion of the christ where they have to go maximum in order to like let it i don't remember how many it was but i watched that movie and i was like Okay, I'm going to start counting, because this is going to go on for a long time. And, like, after I started counting, there were, like, 70 lashes in this movie. So, like, that's what I'm picturing. Not, not obviously, Passion of the Christ, because you're not going to have that much gore in front of the kids. But they're just trying to maximize the visual stimulus and, like, the idea of all the, like, pain and suffering that he's doing for you on some level. Yes, I, too, have questions about the whipping. Um... (laughs) I feel like those are different. I feel like you immediately were like, okay, what kind of whip? (laughs) No, that is the primary question. Was it, like, nine tails or was it, like, a bull whip? No, 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 that's not my question. The question is, how real is it? Is it, like, a fake pro wrestling scenario where they're, like, not using real whips? Or are we actually whipping a person in front of children? Tell me your thoughts. Oh, I'll I'll get there. So So we, like, line up and everyone is just automatically just gets dropped to their knees. In, you know, in, in front of this reenactment, and he's being whipped, and you can just hear him, like, screaming and crying. Oh, sick. And, and yeah, so it's full, like, full pain. And my counselor turns to me, and he says, and she says, he's actually being whipped. Um, <laughs> Wait, they tell you that? So, like, regardless of what's actually happening up there, they're trying to convince you of it being, like, extra realistic. Someone had a meeting where they were like, what are the extra ways that we can freak the kids out? No. He was being whipped, though. That's the thing. She was like, you know, he wanted to be whipped this year because he wanted to feel and really be close to Christ and, and understand his pain. So he was fully being flogged. And when I say flogged, like, they were like, whips with like the multiple like ta- like tassels and multiple people hitting him he was being beaten cat of nine tails yeah again i will say time and a place not around the six-year-olds my god yeah not not a consensual thing you so, know what i mean like i did not want to see that so jenny you were six when you saw this for the first time and when you came back at age seven you knew to expect it um you know I only have one memory of this, and I know it was every year, but I specifically remember it that year. And I don't know if that was because I was more sentient, like as like an older kid, but it was the same year I was also, um, I don't confirmed. I don't know if that's the word. Like, it's the same year I had accepted Jesus into my heart, so I was trying to be pi- more pious that year because I felt like I had done something like that I needed to keep up with and the reason why I remember it so well is because everyone was on their knees and I was like okay I guess I need to get on my knees too um and then people were sobbing <laughs> like and so then I was like am I supposed to be sobbing like this is like really I feel uncomfortable like I don't like seeing this so then I just started like full fake crying like no tears oh, just, like <laughs> my like eight-year-old version of just like <laughs> I definitely remember like, some fake antics at, like, when I was in, like, middle school. There were definitely some fake a- antics at, like, a revival-type situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, I'd be like, uh, where do my hands go while I sing? Do I put one of them up? Some people are rocking the two hands, but that seems a little extreme. I don't know if that's the vibe right now. It's so performative. And as a child, when you engage in these things, you're just modeling what the adults that you respect around you are doing. And you're like, I guess this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, group worship and the, uh, I guess, catharsis that that gives you is a real phenomenon. And so, like, Mm -hmm. enjoying that with your family is a real thing that I'm not trying to dunk on or anything like that. But uh, it should not be the exclusive way that we teach children to channel their emotions. And I think that that should be an uncontroversial statement. Well, I've always been grateful for the Bible studies that I went to because they got me really good at reading stuff. And now I have two degrees in literature, which is dope and very (laughs) and really useful. (laughs) And so now I'm wondering whether like the decision to put one arm up or two arms up, like all their performative stuff related to a worship time has any transform transferable skills to the rest of my life. Like mirroring an adaptation of people's body language. Yeah, like, maybe I could be, like, a half-decent street mime and I didn't realize it. Maybe that's why Jenny remembers this so much from this year, because you were trying extra hard to be empathetic and, like, feel the pain of the person being flogged and, like, try to have respect for, like, that level of devotion. Um, My other theory is that you might have just blocked it out when you were too young because you were like, what is this? I'm six. But who knows? Well, I have a couple ideas about where Jenny's lack of memory of the other events might have come from. One of them is, I can't imagine any of the other crucifixions stacking up to the one where you watch a dude get flogged. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be it. The other ones might have been like a little more low. My other option for what you might have done is just fully skipped it after that, because who would go back? <laughs> yes, who would subject themselves to that knowingly getting on the bus knowing that that's the destination? <laughs> and everyone's getting all hyped and you're just like sitting there with your chattering teeth like this is going to be the worst. Yeah, gather around kids time for the weekly crucifixion i'm putting myself in your shoes by the way i'm not just like projecting harm on you no no i i I think it's kind of interesting because i think in usually in those scenarios the campers have super religious parents and then if they're feeling questioning it's because it's being asserted on you know by their parents and they're individuating but for me i mean we were like kind of fair weather like churchgoers like, it was always, like, my dad being, like, I'm angry at God. We're not going to go to church for six months, <laughs> like, kind of thing. And so when I was going, I really did sometimes feel like a fish out of water because I my relationship with the religion was just a lot different than my peers. So it did make some of these experiences extra uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and for someone like me who was well-versed in how I was supposed to be acting at any given moment... I was still uncomfortable, so I can't imagine what it would be like for people who have extra impediments. Yeah, I I will give credit to my very religious mother for uh, identifying when I went to a scary Bible camp, because Youth Front was largely fine for me, but when I was, like, around 10, I went to this one really fundy camp, like, somewhere in the, like, plains of North Dakota that had, like, a fundy settlement by it where they gave us like a tour of the homeschooling complex and stuff like that like real hardcore stuff and I came home and was talking to my mom and she's like how was camp and I was like it was great I memorized the most bible verses <laughs> uh, of anyone and she's like cool like what happened and I was like uh you know we had this and this and we had hell day and she was like <laughs> she was like talk to me about hell day what was that about 
And I was like, well, we had a whole day about, like, what hell would be like and why it's important to, like, help our friends from going there. And they showed us, like, some pictures and, like, some slideshows of, like, what demons look like and what hell looks like. And, you know, I'm 10, so I'm like, yeah, seems legit. And my mother, God bless her, was like, Sarah, where do you think they uh, got those pictures of hell? And I was like, uh, wow, good point. Yeah, I don't know. And she's like, seems like that might not be real. And I was like, wow, cool, because that's really stressful to me, what just happened. So, good job, Mom. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, the, the message from that is, like, ask your kids questions when they come home from summer camp and find out about what they experienced and, uh, you know, do a little debrief. Always good to keep open communication going. The one nice thing <laughs> that I'll say about going to the missionary camps is that because they were often setting them up in a different country or whatever, they didn't have the resources to do something that was like really elaborately disturbing, like hell day. We never had (laughs) anything like that, but I feel like there were plenty of people there who would have welcomed it if we did. Yeah, that's right. I I feel like can I it was, you know, but if my parents were to ask me about camp, I would be like, Oh my God. Like, I went on the blob, like, I went to the party barn, I, like, had snow cones and was in a ball pit, and then I would totally ignore the moments where I felt uncomfortable because they were like, oh, and then there's, like, this one time I felt, I saw a man get flogged before my very eyes, but that's okay, like, I also did a flip on the trampoline, like, you know, it just... It's sneaky in that way. That's right. Like, I remember when my parents asked me for a debrief after Youth Front when I was, like, 12. I was like, oh, it was so fun. Me and my friend Sarah, another Sarah, had a contest to see who could hold our pee the longest. And I won after three days, and she had to buy me Sour Patch Kids. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, this shows how long we've been friends. I remember this story. And even at the time, you were like, that doesn't seem great, Sarah. (laughs) Well, the the budding hypochondriac in me was like, no, (laughs) you damage. (laughs) I think think I've shared the only other thing. One thing I thought about with capitalism is that there is a very clear caste system at Canada between the counselors and the people working in the kitchen. Interesting. Say more. Yes. So if you interviewed to be a counselor and you did not you know and you weren't enough you weren't a virgin whatever it is oh my god into the Um, kitchen with you whore were (laughs) you worked in the kitchen and so all of them you knew that the kitschies were like the counselor like rejects and it was sad because it's not like there was no real benefit like if you were interested in in, like you know interacting with children um you you didn't really get any because you were really cast off as a kitschy like you never had any interaction with the kitchen staff but you knew that they all were the um, reject counselors and it was just so sad and I don't know what it was about them that made them not worthy enough i find it hard to believe that the kids wouldn't think that the rejects are just awesome rebels i that's my first reaction now is that i want to hang out with those people and like smoke a secret cig with them like on a canacuck location and they can tell me about all the bullshit they're dealing with in reality they're probably all talking at night about their struggle with purity yeah and there's like, there's two types of people in this world. There's counselors and there's kitschies. And you know what? I want to be a kitschy in this life. Hell yeah. I think we can all <laughs> live for that goal. Yeah, that's why we're friends. <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you about your experience with sort of like gender roles at Canacuck. Uh, one thing I remember from Youth Front is that we all had a talk on the first day. Uh, we're talking like 12 to 13 year olds, maybe. And they had a thing that was like, boys are blue and girls are pink. You know, the two genders. And uh, no purple. So like no hanging out alone with like boys and one boy and one girl. And like my little ass that has yet to discover I'm bisexual is like, that seems fine. Want to try kissing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But what was gender like at Canacook? Um, well, we had, like, little to no interaction with, like, the, the boys' side of the camp. Um, especially they, like, kept an eye on the younger kids with that. Um, there was no physical touching. Like, you could not hold hands. I don't even know if you could hug. Um, it was very policed in that way. And, um, if you were caught, you know, holding hands or kissing or anything like that, um, you would be sent to the Hilton. Um, the Hilton, like Paris Hilton, like like Hilton, like the hotel, like chain. Wait, there like, was just a Hilton hotel nearby. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking it'd be sick if they paid for a kid to just be ostracized. Like we're just gonna leave you in this separate location. Yeah, I'd be like sick. <laughs> Let's have like three of my best friends get in trouble, and then we could just stay at this resort for the rest of the time, and then mom can pick me up. Like, please, God. I just spend all my time, like, chatting with whoever the receptionist is or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, is there a mini bar? Like, you know. Um, no. So, like, it was, I, all I know is that there was lots of, of rumor and lore surrounded by it. I heard that you were to sleep in a tent instead of a cabin. So you were, like, really, like, hoofing it in the wilderness. But then a big part of it was doing, like, manual labor. So, like, cleaning things that were really dirty, like like trash cans. So you're basically just a kitschy. <laughs> yeah. But we've established that kitschies have sex. Right. So... Well, I mean, presumably there's some sort of rules that might help prevent them have sex at the camp. So it's, like, I guess a kind of rehabilitation program for troubled teens like the kind of thing that parents pay money to send their troubled kids away to that is like disguising itself as rehabilitative but really is a caste system is that what i'm understanding i mean yeah yeah and it it went on my mom talked about the hilton and how you know it was always like a threat um, and, you know, my mom always said, because I think we all came to terms that as a family, I think later on, that it was not, it did not align with our belief system. I think that was a big reason why I stopped going. But back then, I think it was just purely like a good time, according to my mom. And I think it got more um, radical over the years. But they, I mean, I don't know. If, if they had the Hilton back then, it was probably still pretty radical. You know, when she sent me, she didn't have concerns about me being indoctrinated in any way because she blanked everything out too maybe honestly maybe she did uh i just want to point out that the hilton is a great example to our listeners of restorative justice in action uh vote blue kamal is a progressive (laughs) prosecutor and all that comes with it it's a great job kanika Um, but I think, I think I pretty much, that's all I have. Yeah. So thank you for your service, Jenny. You are braver than any of the troops for your continued efforts to provide us with content to fill our brains. We appreciate you. And we salute you for some reason. (laughs) 
Be fooled by the rocks that I got.